Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Oh, there it goes, I think. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, April 8th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. What's going on? Writer Squai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So Brad is out sick today. He is not uh, able to join us, but he'll be here next week. So don't worry about him. We'll we'll get uh, you know a double dose of what he what he's been eating. He assures week. us he's not is not the coronavirus. So send Brad your well wishes, but don't send them too hard. Yeah, uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's jump into what we've been doing. Uh, I I mean I, I don't think we've been doing much as a collective whole, but uh, th- this past week. Uh, my dog Gizmo uh, was making weird breathing noises, uh, so Kitra had to take him to the vet, which is interesting because the lobby of the vet is closed because of the virus. So they had like these squares in the parking lot, and each person had to stand in like a taped off square. <laughs> and uh, anyways, uh, we took Gizmo to the vet, uh, to the vet, and um, it looks like he has the beginnings of a collapsed trachea which is very common for small dogs and Pomeranians. Uh, so it's not something that we didn't know about because we had heard about that. Uh, but it's not to the point that he needs surgery. Uh, they gave him some antibiotics and some kind of medicine. and uh, But he'll probably eventually someday need surgery to fix it. And even then, they say, like, surgery uh, it doesn't always fix it. But he makes, like, these weird, like, noises like he like he can't breathe well. Uh, it, but, uh, the, the vet says that it's not like he's suffering in any way. Um, he just makes like a, a weird, like, <clears throat> like that kind of noise. <laughs> um, so yeah, been dealing with that. We've been giving him antibiotics, which have been making him like stoned. So he like <laughs> sits there like staring at the wall and he's kind of funny when he's like, uh, on his, uh, medicine, but, uh, yeah. So that, that that's that's the one big thing I did this week. Chris, what have you been up to? 
I, I I did two big things. One is I set my kitchen on fire by accident. Uh, no, I'm not a pyromaniac, so I didn't do it on purpose. Uh, I've been I've been cooking more. I actually started cooking before the pandemic. It just just happened to work out that way. Uh, and in my defense, I've never really cooked before this year i just sort of started doing it out of like oh i want to cook my own meals for me and my wife and so i bought like a cookbook and you know all that stuff but i uh are are you finding it's like meditative like you're like it is it it gives me it's it's i like it because it it keeps me from thinking about everything else which is awful all the time (laughs) so i but I, I, I was making this thing and I, I had to drizzle it with olive oil and I foolishly used this pan that didn't have uh, like a rim around it. And I put it in the oven and the olive oil dripped to the bottom of the oven and the oven literally oh, no. caught fire. And uh, luckily we had a, a fire extinguisher in the house, so I had to use that. Um, the only problem is our kitchen is very small, so the, the fire extinguisher dust residue got like everywhere so i had to spend like a full day cleaning that and scrubbing the oven because i didn't want to you know i didn't want it to kill us so that was that and hey you you had to use antibacterial wipes all over your kitchen anyways this was just an excuse that's true yes so really it's a good thing i set my kitchen on fire And then Chris, Chris, was that a scary thing or was it sort of like, uh, damn it. The the kitchen's on fire. It was, it it was so quick that I didn't really have like, what happened was there was like smoke coming out of the the oven first. And, you know, that's, you know, that happens every once in a while uh, to to people. So I wasn't too alarmed about that, but I opened the door and I probably shouldn't have done this, but I feel like, I think like opening the door got more like oxygen in there. And that's what, like I opened the door and it literally looked like the burning bush from the Ten Commandments was in my oven. Like, like Yahweh was in my oven, and I was like, "Oh my God, there's a there's a ball of fire in here." So I, I grabbed the fire extinguisher and I put it out. And you know the house was kind of smoky, but it, it was over before I could worry too much about it. Mostly I was just annoyed because then I had to clean everything up, and obviously the food I was making was ruined. So that yeah. was that. How, how did your... it was just an annoying fire. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. How did your dogs react to this whole mess? Uh, they were fine. They were indifferent. They were in the other room, thankfully. So uh, nothing too bad happened. Um, then the other thing I did is I, I launched uh, a new podcast, which is 21st Century Spielberg, which is based on the this the column I write for SlashFilm.com. Uh, it's literally just adapting the column into a podcast. So if you don't want to read a lot of words, because those columns are long, here is your solution. You can listen to me doing uh the legwork for you um the first episode is is now live it's not up on itunes yet i am waiting for itunes to approve it but it's pretty much most other places there's a link to it in in the show notes uh, there's a link to it on the site so please give it a listen because it's it's actually it's a lot of work (laughs) like it, it took me a long time to both record it and edit it because when you're when you're doing a podcast by yourself there's a lot of pauses and there's a lot of dead air. And so I, I went meticulously through this, the whole thing and cut out all the dead air and all the pauses to make sure it was uh, listenable. So please listen to it. <laughs> so my hard work isn't for nothing. Chris, last night I listened to the first episode and I really enjoyed it. So Thank I, you. I want to say I that. Really, I appreciate that. Yes. If you out there listen to it, uh, hit me up on Twitter and tell me you actually liked it or tell me it sucks and then i'll change what i'm doing i just i i would love some feedback 
Yeah, I just want to say that uh, 21st century columns, sorry, the 21st century Spielberg columns that Chris wrote and now has adapted are among the favorite things I've ever uh, edited and had published on the website in my tenure here. Uh, and the fact that he's made audio versions is kind of remarkable because they, they're such an incredible undertaking as a project and one that I feel reflects Chris's work as a writer. And to see him branching out with them is very exciting. So I'm going to say, like, if you're listening to this, you really should check it out. Oh well, thank. I'm I'm uh, I'm blushing right now. Thank you. I'm not used to <laughs> such praise, so I really appreciate that, yeah. Jacob. Thank you. Honestly, if I have only one criticism of this, Chris, is I want more. Is that like, like the your first episode is AI and uh, Minority Report, Minor. and right. I feel like AI could have like deserved a whole episode, like a whole like thirty minutes on its own. You know, I was debating whether or not to change it up. Um, the the column is it's two movies at a time because. Yeah. As weird as it is, the the 21st century movies of Spielberg, the like two in a row, sort of always complement each other. Like AI and Minority Report are both sci-fi films, and then the next two are uh, the Terminal and Catch Me If You Can, which are both sort of like light, playful comedies, and it just sort of like worked out that way. So yeah. that's kind of how I'll I'll I think I'm going to stick with that. But you, you you never know, you never know what happened. But I'm going to do this. It's going to be monthly, uh, so the next one will be around um, you know, May and then so on, and I will keep going until I finish the 21st century filmography of Steven Spielberg, and then uh, I don't know what I'll do. <laughs> <laughs> then you'll start 22nd century Spielberg. Oh, wow. That's, that seems unlikely, but you yeah, never know. Yeah, yeah. You heard it here. Chris can tell the future. That's right. Yes, he will be hundreds of years old, but still making movies. And so will I. I will, I will be alive and still writing about them. Hey, if any filmmaker has the money and like probably the connections with like, you know, scientists to like make him, you know, a digital version of himself, it's probably Spielberg, right? Yeah, it'll be like his head on like a robot body, robot yeah. Spielberg. Yeah, totally. Okay, uh, Jacob, what have you been up to? Uh, we're so bored in our house that we renamed the days of the week since time has lost all meaning and Saturday and Thursday no longer matter. Uh, because they're all the same these days. <laughs> Don't leave the house. Uh, so we decided that each day of the week belongs to a member of the household. Uh, Saturday is, uh, sorry, so Sunday is Jack Day, which means that it's in honor of our dog Jack. Uh, Monday is Carl Day in honor of our dog Carl. Uh, Tuesday is Fred Day in honor of our cat Fred. Today, Wednesday, is now Fitz Day in honor of our cat Fitz. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow, Thursday, is now Natalie Day in honor of my wife. And Friday is Jacob Day in honor of me. And Saturday is Everybody Day. So each day, uh, we, we exist no longer as a way to uh, represent some structure to our lives and in our world or civilization, but as a way to say, hi, uh, animal lives in our house. Today is your special day. Do you want a piece of bacon? Here you go. And uh, that's how it's going to go. So like, on Natalie Day, my wife gets to pick what, she want, what we watch. And on Friday, I'll get to pick what I want to watch. And on Sunday, we'll give jack the dog uh an extra treat or something that's how that's my life now guys that's that's what what it's come down to see but you have the right amount of people and animals in your house to make that work like what if you had one less like how would that how would how would you you know associate the days like would it rotate with the days like would there no longer be a seven day week yeah, I think, for example, Peter, if you wanted to do your household but didn't want, want to keep it just you and Kitra, yeah. it was rotate on a two-day schedule. Uh, the, the week not only has two days, <laughs> and there are now, like, 18 weeks in a month. So there you go. Oh, wow. 18 weeks in a month. We don't – I mean, it already feels like that, but we don't, we don't need to actually make it that. Uh, HT, 
what have you been up to? I ventured out onto the roof of my apartment for the first time. So this is something that my roommate and I had always been eyeing because we're on the top level of my apartment. And uh, there's just one last staircase that leads to the rooftop of our apartment building, but we had never ventured onto it before. Uh, We were always kind of intimidated by just the idea of going up there. And we've also, we're very cautious about just being locked up on the roof accidentally because that's just... A fear of ours so uh but you know we're not going anywhere so and we just wanted some fresh air that wasn't from our uh, fire escape so we went to the rooftop and it was really nice uh we there was like actually a chair out there already that we were able to use to prop up prop open the door and we just hung out there for a little bit drinking some beer and actually at 7 p.m um on I think it was last Friday, uh, on the other side of our building, there were two people in the building across from us that were holding sort of a sing-along uh, for everyone to <laughs> participate in, and uh, they sang "Lean on Me," um, and uh, it was it was actually quite nice. And you know, we also were there when everyone uh, participated in the uh, clapping for medical workers around seven as well. So it was yeah, I you'll probably be seeing a lot more just <laughs> pictures of me on my roof because. <laughs> the only thing I'm doing right now is taking pictures of ourselves and just hanging out there and drinking. So that's all my Instagram is going to be from now on, probably. Hey, if my limited knowledge of New York City from movies and television tell me anything, it's people in New York hang out on the roofs all the time. Yes. And it's yes. fun. It's really nice. <laughs> okay. Let's move on to what we've been reading. Chris, you are the only person on this podcast that has been reading anything uh, substantial this week. So tell tell me about that. Right. So this isn't a book. It's actually a series of articles. And I don't know how I didn't know about this. Um, so uh, Grady Hendrix, who is a writer, uh, he wrote like My Best Friend's Exorcism and Paperbacks from Hell and several other things. Uh, a few years ago on tour.com, T-O-R.com, he did this thing called the the Great Stephen King Reread, where he reread almost all of Stephen King's books. He didn't do the Dark Tower series and he left out one or two other things, and he stopped at uh, The Bazaar of Broken Dreams, which is a short story collection, and Stephen King has obviously published more books since then because he publishes like five books a month. But this covers a huge chunk of Stephen King's career. It's like a series of articles of of Gritty Andrix just like going over the books and the stories behind the books and – uh, like I said, I, I don't know how I didn't know about this because I'm, you know, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. And I read as much about him as I can, but I just sort of accidentally stumbled across this. So if you, like me, were unaware of this and you're a Stephen King fan, I, I highly recommend this because it's it's really entertaining. It's really informative. Uh, even if you're like aware of the stuff he's going over, it's still like articulated really well because Grady Hendrix is a good writer. So uh, I put a link to it in the show notes. Um, So yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. Yes. Okay. Let's move on to what we've been watching. Ben last week on uh, this podcast uh, talked about a show on Apple TV plus called home before dark. And this is from director John M. Chu. It stars Brooklyn Prince. Uh, She's this precocious, like, little girl who moves with her family back to uh, her parents, uh, her father's childhood home. And uh, she she likes writing these, like, newspapers. She's kind of a uh, (laughs) a strange kid. And she kind of uh, suspects that there was a murder in this town. And she goes on this investigation to kind of prove it and find out who did it uh 
I think it's probably the good setup for this. Um, I I've only watched the first episode, and that's not because I didn't like it. Uh, it it was really good. It's uh, it's really uh, it's really a strange show in that it th- this feels like it should be a family friendly show on like like a like Disney Plus or something, but it somehow is uh. It, it's pushed up. It, it kind of gets the like like a premium cable series like treatment. It, it feels like better than it it, it it should be, and it also like is you know has very some some very adult themes like there's you know death and murder. But it, it's really about this this kid. So it it, it feels really weird. Like I'm not like sure who the target audience is for this. I, I mean, I'm in, it's just strange that you're getting this story about a kid, like detective or kid reporter that has like, you know, Radiohead songs. And <laughs> it's it just, it's it, Ben. It, do you like agree in that sense? I, I know what you're talking about. Um, I think the violence and stuff like that is never, it's, it's more alluded to than actually shown, which is why I think they can get away with it. And I actually interviewed uh, John Chu and one of the showrunners about this um, late last week. So maybe we can link to that in the show notes, but they talked about how they really like sought to make this like a, a four quadrant, like Amblin style experience that the whole family can watch together. So it, it's really designed for kids and adults and you know teenagers and everybody to be able to just just like sit down on the couch and and check this out at the same time so that's the vibe they were going for whether or not they fully succeeded in striking the exact perfect balance to that at all times uh you know is going to be up to you i think but um i I definitely know what you're talking about yes yeah uh did you end up finishing the series I did. My wife and I started watching it. I knew that I was going to be interviewing these people, so I wanted to obviously have some of it under my belt before that happened. I think I watched like the first four episodes before I, I spoke with them, and then afterwards, um, we were just like interested in the mystery behind it, so we just kept going and, and finished all ten episodes uh, in the first season. I think that it starts out a little bit stronger than it gets in the middle, which is you know typical for um, <laughs> a lot of shows. I think uh, it sags just a little bit. There, there's like a, a uh, subplot with um, the young girl's older sister that I really could have done entirely without. Like I just did not care about the <laughs> the romantic exploits of that character at all. Um, anytime the show is concentrating on this nine year old journalist and the the central mystery and her parents and uh, her parents' involvement in this mystery and and uh, a separate mystery going back thirty years, I was that's the stuff that. That's where the movie or I'm sorry, the show really um, flies, I think. So I, I we were interested in the overarching mystery. We watched the whole thing. I think I, I guess I would just say, like, uh, if you're the type of person that wants complete and utter satisfaction um, and every single mystery to be completely tied up and by the end of the, the season, then uh maybe don't watch this but if you're okay with like almost all of them being answered then uh go for it Uh, no spoilers here but i'm assuming this is setting up more seasons is why Uh, why you're saying that it definitely has that vibe at the end I'll, i'll just leave it at that yeah yeah, uh, but I I really love the you know Brooklyn Prince. I mean, hot take. She was <laughs> amazing in the Florida Project. Uh, just her character is so interesting. Like she's seen 
all the president's men like 36 times or something like that just like always like going back to it and getting some inspiration uh it's if yeah it it really feels like a like a show for so many different people and i'm not sure if that's a good thing but i i'm in i'm, I'm gonna watch more episodes of this uh this this week so uh, maybe i'll catch up by uh next week's water cooler but so i think we we both recommend home before dark yeah, I think what you said is right. It, it has like a prestige sheen to it that makes it feel a little bit better than it has any right to be. Yeah. So I, I think it's better than a lot of, you know, normal uh, run of the mill sort of TV shows. So I'd, I'd give it a shot. Yeah. Uh, in previous episodes of the podcast, we talked about Onward. A couple of us, uh, of us had seen it. And now, uh, Chris and HT, you have seen it. Uh, Chris, what did you think of Pixar's new film, Onward? Uh, I, uh, I look it's not it's not a bad movie but it's it's definitely like bottom tier pixar for me it's like one i don't think i'll ever revisit the problem i have with it is it felt really for lack of a better word straightforward and like when i think of pixar i think of movies that like you know when i think of the good pixar movies i think of movies that like push the envelope a little and and do something you're not expecting and like everything that happened in this movie i was like oh I, that's really predictable uh on top of that i really could not stand uh chris pratt's character i don't know if it's a case of the character is poorly written or if chris pratt is just a terrible voice actor <laughs> but every time his character did something i was like boy i want this character to shut the fuck up he was just insufferable and i I just could not get into the movie because I just couldn't stand him. Also, I got really sick of like them just like, ah, oh, there's a pair of pants walking around. I don't know. I didn't like it. I did not like Onward. <laughs> yeah. I-, I wish Brad was here because he loved Chris Pratt in this movie, I think, in uh, one of the water coolers. Uh, it really felt like they wanted Jack Black for the role and they couldn't get him. So they got Chris Pratt. Yeah, it really felt like they were basing that on like Jack Black's tenacious D character. And they like thought, well, Chris Pratt's a bigger star now, so let's get him. But I just don't think he's a good voice actor. Uh, so uh, I just didn't care for his character. HT, what did you think of onward? I was much more to this movie than Chris, but I will say it's probably not one of my favorite Pixar's. I say it's probably like, Mid-tier, maybe upper mid-tier Pixar for me. Uh, I enjoyed the simplicity of this film, actually. it's I thought, like, I, I liked how straightforward it was. Um, I thought at some points, though, it did feel disjointed, especially in the elements of its more rich world-building part and the simple brother uh, brotherly story, the sibling story between Chris Pratt and Tom Holland's character. And um, I remember... I was really turned off by the character designs uh, um, yeah. and just general look of this film before I even watched it. I can't say that I liked it anymore while watching it, but I did really enjoy the emotional uh, crux of this movie, especially in you know that sibling relationship. And I actually I quite liked how it was. Um, in contrast to the more simplistic narrative of the movie, that relationship was a little bit more, had a little bit more depth and complexity to it than I anticipated. I liked the idea of, uh, like, spoilers, like the bro- older brother kind of being the one who raised the, the younger brother, and that kind of that added another uh, depth to this movie that I didn't actually 
anticipate. And uh, I quite like that. I, I felt like it was almost a, almost an evolution in terms of how Pixar treats its emotional narratives a little bit so that we've been seeing, especially with like, you know Toy Story 4, which was an okay movie, but had a really interesting uh, emotional um, through line. So uh, yeah, I liked it. I, I can't say it's one of my favorite Pixar's, but uh, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Um, but yeah, it's a, uh, I think that I think you said this, Peter, back when you were first talking about it, that there's kind of a, it feels like there's two movies in here. Yeah. And I enjoyed one movie much more than I enjoyed the other. Like, I enjoyed the story of the brothers a lot more than, like, the actual world and the anachronisms. Which is so strange because I think that world is such a great idea that, you know, there used to be magic and it got replaced by technology. But it, it feels like they never... Follow like up on yeah. Never fall. They never follow up on that in any way. Like no, no. I guess this is it's not really a spoiler, but like you expect when you establish that that like by the end of the movie, the world's gonna realize that the world used to be magical and like it doesn't become. It's not about that at all. Like it, it really does feel like two different ideas that like they had. This feels. I I, I like this movie more than Chris. I think I'm in the middle of you guys. It feels like this was like, you know how Pixar remakes their movie like five times during the development? This feels like it's like the third time and they haven't gotten to the five, you know, the like the polished fifth draft of the movie. That's what it yeah, feels like to yeah. Me. I can I can see that too. Yeah. Um, what have I been watching? Oh, uh, last week, Ben, I guess I'm following Ben. Everything he's recommending, I'm just like going and watching. Uh, <laughs> but I, I went, uh, watched Happy Death Day, which I don't know why I didn't watch this sooner because I love, uh, movies that have like time loops and, uh, that, that whole thing, like Groundhog Day. I have, uh, been going to Halloween Horror Nights for years and I've experienced like Happy Death Day and a variety of different mazes there and uh you know the 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 baby faced head things uh masks uh were always kind of interesting and made me be interested I'm not sure why I didn't watch it I don't know but now it's streaming on HBO and I gave it a chance and uh, it's good it's really good uh I will say in the beginning I wasn't as into it because the main character is very unlikable at first and, <laughs> and very stupid. And I know that's the point, And I know that's where we get to like, you need to have an arc for this character. But like, I feel like she was unlikable to a degree that like it was off putting, <laughs> but um, you need to see glimpses of like the person that she could be in the beginning to, I don't know. That would be my one, one criticism. Uh, I didn't anticipate this to be, that it was going to be so much of a comedy. Like, I feel like it, it's almost at times more of a comedy than a horror movie. Um, and, uh, I love that. It's kind of like the scream style mystery of, you know, who is the person under the mask? And she's reliving this one day, the day that she dies to find out who it is. But at the same time, like one of the times when she's getting killed, why doesn't she just like pull off the guy's mask? Would have been easy. She could have found out that. Uh, but, uh, the the baby mask is creepy. I'm I'm excited to watch the sequel because I know you guys uh, like Chris was saying that the sequel is even better than the first. Oh yeah, I, I I like both of these, but the sequel I I like more. The sequel is is crazier and sharper and funnier and like surprisingly emotional. Like it made me cry at one point when I first saw it. So the sequel I I really recommend. 
I think you especially will really like the sequel, Peter, because it has a much more sci-fi comedy bent. So it's definitely yeah. something I feel like appeals to you. Well, I'm excited. Um, okay, Peter, uh, since we're talking about this really quick, I actually watched Happy Death Day to you, uh, and oh, I it. didn't really have much to say about it aside from everything that everybody here just said, including like what Chris said, which is that I actually uh, it made me cry at one point, and I was totally not expecting that from a sequel to a horror movie that has sort of a, a goofy like time loop premise. So um, yeah, I was very surprised by how well executed the sequel was and how much um, bigger and sort of crazier and funnier it is. And uh, I, I think it's just a huge, huge improvement over the first one, which I liked a, a lot as it was. So I think you're, yeah, I, I echo everybody's comments that I think you're really going to enjoy that. Well, very cool. Uh, I also watched uh, this past week, David Blaine had a new TV special called David Blaine, the magic way. And I'm, I actually don't know what the story is behind this TV special, David Blaine doesn't do that many TV specials. Like he usually does a TV special like every like, I guess the last few years he's been doing it like every two years or something like that. But before that, like there was periods of like four or five years he didn't do a special. So it was rare to get a David Blaine magic special on TV. And this special feels like it was put together very quickly. It was announced like a week and a half ago or two weeks ago that it was going to be uh, on ABC. And like it, it feels like it was the result of this pandemic that kind of put this together in some way. I, I don't know if he was like in the middle of making a special and then it kind of had to evolve into something else. And then ABC was like, we, we have a spot that we need to like uh, fill something with. But um, the, the special f starts off with showing David Blaine doing magic over FaceTime. He's doing magic over FaceTime to the healthcare workers who are working in New York city and places around the world, uh, during this time, it w which is really strange because like they have like a deck of cards and they're shuffling and he's telling them to do stuff. Um, they, it, the, the, the special really is about the power of close up magic and how it can, you know, entertainment can heal us in these kind of times. Uh, the, it's interesting too, because he, in recent years, David Blaine started off as a magician who walked the streets and would do magic uh, on the streets to people. And it was all about he he as a magician changed it from it being about the magic and the magician to it being about the reactions. It's it's all about the people's reactions. It's all about the guy running away, yelling, no, no, no. It's, it's about that. And also, you know, him acting him possibly having like real power, like, you know, teasing that it could be, is it real? Like, is this a trick or is this like a real thing? Is he really sticking a skewer through his hand or is that like a gimmick? It's it's like the question of those things. In recent years, his specials have come to be more about him doing magic for celebrities, uh, which is strange. And in the special, uh, there's a couple times where he's doing magic for like different celebrities. Uh, and it almost feels like it was filmed at someone's party some someone's hollywood party on like an iphone like he had a friend like oh tape this I'll, I'll you know i'll film this and maybe we could put this into a special or something so it's like very like these impromptu kind of stuff for the most part and like that facetime stuff and it's fun to see him uh it really doesn't feel like there were anything like any hugely new invented tricks here he's doing a lot of like his classics, the stuff that you saw in his first two specials. Uh, but it's interesting to, 
at least from a magician point of view and looking at magic as art, seeing how the the tricks that he did in his original specials have evolved and are now he's made found ways to make them more personal. He's had a, you know, like he'll do a trick and someone, you know, he's shuffling face down and face up cards and uh, he restores the deck. And originally it was like, you know, he'd restore the deck and it would be the person's, the card they picked was the only card that's not uh, face down. But now it's like, oh, it's the guy's like pin code on his iPhone. And it, it, it's it's more interesting in, in that way. Uh, I, I think you could probably find this on YouTube if you're interested. I, I wouldn't say this is like a top tier uh, David Blaine special. I, I would say like uh, two specials ago, the Real or Magic special, I think was one of his best. Um, but it was really enjoyable. And oh, it ends with this whole segment, like a 10 minute segment of him and his daughter. It's very heartfelt. Uh, his daughter's trying to learn magic. And it's it, that I think is probably the best segment of the whole thing. So uh, that is David Blaine, The Magic Way. Uh, you can find it on ABC or maybe you can find it on YouTube or something like that. Um, a couple weeks back, I watched a screener of the first five episodes of Bosch season six. This is a show that's on Amazon, which I know no one else on this podcast watches. Uh, although I think I, I keep on saying this, but I think Ben would enjoy the first couple seasons of Bosch because it's like a hard boiled, like detective story. I uh, am going to watch it one day. Yeah. I promise you that. Um, Stopping it, dads. You don't have kids. <laughs> it It's so weird. It's such a weird show because I feel like it, you look at a billboard, you look at a poster, you even look at a trailer for Bosch. It doesn't seem appealing in any way, but uh, it it is actually a pretty good show. And like the first couple seasons are good because it's, I believe it's an adaptation of a like novel uh, of a couple novels, and the first couple seasons are kind of um, more self contained and can can be almost watched as like a ten hour movie like a detective movie. Uh, it, sure, there is some backstory of him, like kind of investigating what happened to his mom. And that through line kind of goes throughout the seasons. Uh, I would say the downfall to season six of Bosch is that it has kind of reached a level of serial storytelling where I don't think, I feel like you could jump into season three and still understand everything season six you jump in like it, it has so much stuff that's been established in this world it, it takes place in la and there's like the character that's running for mayor and there's like all this stuff going on that like isn't really like so simple uh and this season's also weird it, it, it um it has reached a like it begins with a 24 level threat of and how it would really go down of someone having some radioactive material in LA. And uh, it, it's kind of not what you expect from Bosch. Uh, I, I did want to ask Ben this because I was watching the first episode of this and they, uh, the, he, Bosch goes to interview a victim, her a, a wife whose husband has been killed and murdered. Right. And he, he is interviewing the victim, getting like, you know, finding out what happened. Like she, she had been tied up and stuff like that. Um, and, the victim was giving such a bad acting job that I was for like, you know, I was wondering like, is this intentional for us to suspect the wife or is she just a bad actress? And like, you know, the, the, the characters on screen don't address it. Like, 
like I don't believe her or something. Has that ever happened in a mystery story for you, Ben? Um, that somebody has been purposefully bad and well, like as a, as a manner of deception. And then you find out later, like, oh, this character is actually different than. Well, I don't want to say if she's been purposely bad or not, or I'm not even going to say if I know if she's been purposely bad or not. Um, but I'm, I'm just wondering, like, have you ever gone into a story and been like, that performance is really like, we, like, but am I supposed to think it's like, you, you, like while you're watching it, are you, have you ever encountered that where you're like questioning, like, is this intentional or is this like just a bad performance? Um, yes. What the hell is the name of, and I'm sure somebody here can help me out. The name <laughs> of the, I want to say it's called heist. The, the, oh. yes. Uh, David Mamet, the 2001, yeah. Movie. I'm Are you gonna say sure. Rebecca Pigeon? Because I'm gonna fight you on this. And, and no, I thought it was um. <laughs> God, who? There's somebody in a movie like that. Is it? Is it Edward Norton? Uh, somebody. Oh, has that's supporting... the, you're thinking of the score with Robert De Niro. Yes, yes, yes. That's the one. That's the one. Uh, Edward Norton has a, I think, has a supporting role in that movie. And I was like, what on earth is this choice? And then. Uh, you know, events transpire, and it's like sort of like, oh, okay, I, I guess I understand this a little bit better now. That's the only one off the top of my head I can think of. Yeah, it was just strange because it's not also like they walk away from the interview and like Bosch is like, something's up with her. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if they said that, then I'd be like, oh, maybe this is intentional. But um, yeah, so uh, Bosch season six, I'm not sure if I, I recommend it unless you've you know seen the first five seasons and liked it. But I'm I'm still in, and I'm gonna watch the. The final five episodes whenever I get access to those. Um, Peter, I have a Bosch question for you. Yeah. I have, I have not watched Bosch. I have not read any of the books it's based on. <laughs> yeah. But I do know that writer Michael Connolly, the novelist, in the universe that he creates within his books, he has two ongoing series. His character, the Lincoln lawyer, who Matthew McConaughey played in a film adaptation, is the half brother of Bosch, and they and they occasionally oh. cross over in each other's novels. Has the Lincoln lawyer shown up in Bosch in any capacity? Not that I know of. Not that Ooh. I remember. Huh. Not, I, I remember like a part where like a, a Lincoln drives by and, and Bosch winks at the camera. Like, <laughs> that's my brother. I was reading an article with uh, Michael Connolly when I was writing up the most recent trailer for Bosch season six, Jacob. And I, he mentioned that uh, whatever movie studio produced the Lincoln lawyer, I want to say it's like CBS films or something has the rights to that character, the Mickey, whatever his name is character. Um, so I don't think that he's been able to appear in the Bosch verse. I want the Michael Connolly cinematic universe, the MCCU guys, <laughs> bring it on. Well, yeah, it seems like it's not going to happen, Jake. <laughs> so, Look, I will watch Bosch if they bring in the Lincoln Lawyer. I'll yeah. Lincoln Lawyer is a good movie. I like that movie. Yeah. Only if they name him Lincoln Lawyer. <laughs> Mr. Lawyer is my name. <laughs> okay. Uh, what else have I been watching? I also watched uh, the episode, the, the last episode of Better Call Saul that aired this week, and it was awesome. I don't really want to spoil too much of it. I know, uh, you know, Vince Gilligan, who hasn't really been involved in the writer's room this season. He came and directed this this episode, and it's just so good. It, it is probably one of the best episodes of this series, and I highly recommend if if you ha- aren't watching this season. Well, you know, if you aren't watching the show, watch the show. But if for some reason you, you know, you have a bunch of these on your DVR and you haven't gotten into the season, you, you got to catch up because this is so good. Uh, Chris, I know you also watch the show, right? Yes, and this this is like the best episode not just of this show, I think it's it's up there with like all the best episodes of 
both this show and Breaking Bad. Like this is up there with like Ozymandias and stuff like that. It's so, it was such a good episode. It blew me away. I was not expecting, even though I love this show, I was not expecting how great this episode was. So I know there are people out there who have yet to start Better Call Saul, and I I implore you, please check it out because it is such a great show. I, I honestly think it's like the best show on TV right now. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you there, and it's also interesting. I was listening to the Better Call Saul podcast, which they have, which is a great podcast. It's not a great produced podcast. It's a bunch of people involved in the show sitting around talking about the making, and it, it's a lot of like, you know, patting each other on the back, which is kind of annoying. But aside from that, like you get like a really good glimpse into the, the making of a show and how you know the work of what a showrunner does, and you know, even they'll have like the editor, they'll have the actors. Uh, but this week on the episode. Uh, I guess it's fair to say that this episode, this last week's episode, takes place mostly out in the desert, kind of like, uh, you know, like the desert that like uh, we've seen, you know, in Albuquerque for, in Breaking Bad and stuff like that. Uh, what I didn't know is this was filmed during the summer, which is like intense heats in Albuquerque. Like they didn't have a, a choice because, you know, if it was a movie, you'd schedule the filming to happen like later on, but like this was in the middle of the season or, you know, the very end of the season. It's not like they can delay the filming and they have to shoot this thing in the middle of the desert with, you know, the main actors like on screen, almost every single shot. And, uh, it, it Vince Gilligan said it was like the, the, the hardest thing he had to ever film in his life. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, that's all I've been watching. Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, in addition to the things I already mentioned, I also watched Killing Eve season three, which um, premieres this week and it premieres on Sunday. And my review actually just went up today and it, it, it's good. Um, if you like this show, you're, you're still going to like the season. I know a lot of people were kind of uh, not in love with season two. I thought it was was good. It's not as good as the first season, but I thought it was good. But a lot of people were angry especially at the way the second season ended but um so if if you were angry about that i don't know if you're going to want to stick with the show because it doesn't it's not like this season is like changing course but if you're still in on this show you're you're gonna continue to like it i i love this show so uh again it's not as great as season one season one um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge was like directly involved and, and producing it and writing it and she actually left the show after season one and you can tell you can tell she's not involved anymore because it, it doesn't have like as sharp writing as it did in season one but it, it, I still think it's a worthwhile show and uh, that premieres on Sunday like I said Jacob you've been watching like more things in the last week than I think I have for the, the last six months yeah I have uh it was a big painting week for me, <laughs> miniature painting. So I would uh, set up shop in front of the TV, and I would paint uh, while we watch things. So we start things off with a movie that has been discussed on this podcast a few times already, so I'll be brief. Uh, the Mask of Zorro. Great movie. Like It's one of those movies where, you know, 20-some-odd years ago, it was like, oh, a really fun popcorn flick. But age has, you know, revealed that, it's, oh, this is actually a great movie, <laughs> not just a fun movie. Uh, t- time does that to blockbusters sometimes. It allows us to see the filmmaking beyond, you know, the mass appeal. And it's just such a wonderful piece of entertainment, beautifully executed. Martin Campbell, such an up and down career. I mean, the same guy who made this and GoldenEye and Casino Royale also made Green Lantern. It's just baffling. But um, when he's on, he's on. And uh, 
Master Zoro is just this old-fashioned swashbuckler. It's sexy. It's funny. It's exciting. It's smart. Uh, it's, it's just a it's, it's a complete package. So we decided to follow Mask of Zorro uh, with another swashbuckler, and that is 2002's The County of Monte Cristo, based on the Alexandra uh, Dumas novel. And I read the book in high school, and I loved it. And my wife had seen the movie in high school and loved it, so we decided to <laughs> finally watch the movie together. And it's kind of like someone said, yeah, this book about revenge uh, needs to have action. So it's so even though it follows the basic beats of the novel, uh, it adds lots and lots of sword fights. Which, you know, in the book, uh, the main character is sent to prison uh, for wrong, for crime he didn't commit, escapes, and systematically gets revenge on the people who put him there by destroying their lives financially, emotionally, just wrecks them in every possible way, but, you know, doesn't actually sword fight them. And in this one, he sword fights all of them. Jacob, um, um, do you remember the tagline for this movie? Because it's burned to my brain because I, I love it so much. What is it? The tagline is, uh, I think it came out in the summer, so it was like, this summer, count on revenge. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. anyway, this, this is sort of like Kevin Reynolds who did Waterworld and Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. It's it's a goofy movie. It's it's fun. It's 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 the goofiest way you could have adapted this material, but I had a good time with it. Young Jim Caviezel is the lead. Uh a really over the top uh Guy Pierce plays the uh main villain. Just like sniveling rotten teeth, just like just like the worst possible guy imaginable. And uh, baby Henry Cavill, like Henry Cavill, like shrunk to like one third of his modern size is in this. And every time Henry Cavill showed up, even though he's perfectly fine, I couldn't stop laughing because he's so tiny. You can fit Henry Cavill in your pocket in this movie. It reminds me of, of seeing Tom Hardy in Star Trek Nemesis, where like his Tom Hardy can fit in your pocket for the one time only. So it just like, it, it just cracked me up to see Henry Cavill so tiny. Uh, HG, have you seen this movie? I need to know your opinion on tiny Henry Cavill. I haven't seen this movie because when it came out, I was reading the book at the time and my parents had rented the movie and I was excited to uh, watch the movie and kind of compare it to the book. But my parents would not let me watch the movie until I finished the book. And I was very upset by that. Um, so I never actually saw this movie. Uh, but um, I will say about ten, hi, tiny Henry Cavill, he also shows up in Stardust at the beginning of the film and is also very tiny. Yeah, it is surreal. It's, it's like the Captain America, see Steve Rogers before the serum uh, and, and Civil War. And sorry, sorry, First Adventure. It's just like that, but it's Henry Cavill. It, it looks it's like a, a giant head in his tiny body, even though it's his real body. It, it, it <laughs> cracked me up every single time he was on screen. I'm sorry, Henry Cavill. You're a very attractive man now. Uh, moving on, uh, Kong Skull Island was on TV, so we watched it with commercials, which is weirdly relaxing. Uh, I feel like when a movie has commercials, you're allowed to like you know chit chat on, on, on breaks, like get up, go get a snack. There's something, there's something like I miss about that in the age of streaming of being able to like every 15 minutes like stretch out and chat about the movie so far and you know check your email. There's something very relaxing about commercials at the right time, the right situation. And Kong's Island, it's it's good. I still like the movie. It's a lot of fun. It's a big silly monster mash, far more successful at what it wants to do than the Godzilla sequel. And speaking of Godzilla. The Gareth Edwards Godzilla played directly after it on TV, so we watched that too. And I'm still a big fan of this movie. I know Aaron Taylor Johnson's snooze, but I love how Edwards films this movie. And I just uh, love how it's a horror film, first and foremost. love how it hides Godzilla. I love that it's a disaster film. It's about you know human reaction, reacting to something that they can't stop. I mean, the movie is really about uh, a godlike, godlike beings wrecking the earth and, hum and humankind reacting to it as opposed to like being involved in it. And it's a perspective that I really find terrifying and appreciate a lot. And uh, we followed up with National Treasure, <laughs> um, which is 
God, that movie's fun. Another movie like Mask of Zorro that was like a big hit at the time, a big populist, you know, film made for a wide audience that time has revealed is actually really, really genuinely good. Uh, I don't like the sequel as much, but the first one holds up so well. And Nicolas Cage is having a lot of fun. It's a right balance of Silly Cage and Serious Cage. And I like that's PG. I like that it's a family film that still feels adventurous and action-packed. We're all team National Treasure here, right? Everybody likes National Treasure on this podcast, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't like National Treasure 2, but I yeah. love the first one. Yeah, the sequel's not as good, but the first one's awesome. All right, so we followed it up naturally with Raiders of the Lost Ark, the perfect double feature with National Treasure. I know I talked about Indiana Jones and Last Crusade last week. Uh, Raiders, it's also on Netflix like Last Crusade, and it's just a, it's a masterpiece. I don't need to say anything else, but Raiders of the Friggin' Lost Ark. It's a pitch-perfect movie. It's my top ten of all time. Uh, it's an unmatched movie. It, it's, it's peerless. Uh but we decided to follow up with another Spielberg movie, Minority Report, uh, speaking of Chris's 21st Century column, also streaming on Netflix. Minority Report, not as good as Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I still like it a lot. I think there's some contrivances to the script. The last stretch uh, kind of bends over backwards to give a sad story a happy ending. And it really does kind of um, soften the edges of the Philip K. Dick short story on which it's based. But no one shoots action like Spielberg. It's an exciting movie. And the... Uh, the future is a aspects. He famously did a lot of research and brought on a lot of people to like envision what a future would look like. And so much of this movie uh, came to pass in ways both subtle and not so subtle. Uh, Minority Report mostly holds up. I really like Minority Report. Uh, next up, uh, a Shutter original called The Room. This is not the Tommy Wiseau The Room. This is a uh, small, uh, I think, Belgian horror movie. Uh, star- starring Olga Kirilenko. It's about a couple who move into an old house and find a room with a strange contraption that can grant any wish that they uh, want. And since this is a Shudder original, the Shudder being the horror streaming service, things go very poorly for them as they start making the wrong kinds of wishes. And I found this to be a really engaging movie, you know, far from perfect, you know, rough around the edges, uh, but it takes the idea of wishes gone wrong and in a really unique direction. I feel like so many uh, of these types of horror movies are like, essentially the monkey paw on a different scale. Oh, your wish is in reverse. Things go wrong. Whereas the room manages to make an evil horror movie, wish gone wrong movie. That is not monkey paw all over again. Uh, and I want to say any more because the wishes they make c- come back to haunt them in a way that genuinely surprised me. Chris, have you seen the room yet? I haven't. I keep seeing it on shutter, but based on what you said, I, I'll probably check it out now. Cause I wasn't sure if it was any good or not. Yeah, I, I like it a lot. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think. Uh, they need to change the name, though. The, talking about The Room, when there's already a more famous movie called The Room, is a pain in the butt. Right. Uh, all right, Disney Plus. I hit Disney Plus up. Uh, Ratatouille. Guys, uh, top two Pixar for me. Probably right behind Up or Inside Out. Uh, it's it's a great movie. Uh, WALL-E. Uh, you know WALL-E is a movie about uh, human beings um, flee into isolation with their screens after a bumbling businessman uh, and his government fails to respond to a disaster. It's, it's, it's good quarantine viewing, guys. <laughs> uh, anyway, always good. The, the way you put it, Jacob, makes me feel like I would get mad and I would start hating a, a Pixar movie I love. So I don't want to uh, do that. Uh, followed up with Aladdin, the 1992 version. Uh, holds up for, for me for the most part. It's, it's weird now because as brilliant as Robin Williams is as the genie, uh, his jokes ensure that it's one of the very few Disney movies that will never be timeless unless Roddy Dangerfield impressions are timeless 50 years from now. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, still, I, think it's, I think it's a fun movie. I like it quite a bit. Naturally, followed up with Moana, which is 
Aladdin remade in the Polynesian Islands, but I like Moana more than Aladdin, actually. And um, Moana is one of those movies I can watch over and over again. It's a delightful thing. Uh, the perfect mixture of all the Disney elements I love so much. Uh, finally, Disney Plus, Captain Marvel. I like it. It's good. Like, it's fun. Uh, Try us a little too hard at times, but um, I'd say, you know, lower the mid-tier Marvel. But I still think Captain Marvel is a perfectly fine time, uh, especially since you can, like, stream it while you paint miniatures and not pay attention to it at all times. Uh, <laughs> uh, finally, New Girl. I'm on season three now. Uh, season three... <coughs> Excuse me, I'm talking a lot. Uh, HD, season three of New Girl is my favorite one so far. Um, am, I, am I correcting that assumption? Is that the common uh, thing amongst fans? Oh, for sure. Season three is when it really hits its stride because... Uh, they tone down Zoe Deschanel's character's quirkiness and they tone up everyone else's uh, real oddball antics, especially once they unleash Lamorne Morris. He's hilarious uh, as Winston. And he's just he's just so funny and really the scene stealer of the show, like from you know season two, season three onward. And of course, Jake Johnson and his fantastic facial expressions. Uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying that. I really like that you're enjoying it. And I hope that you're going to continue enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... We just met Ferguson the cat, and Lamorne Morris is gone insane. It's such an incredible performance. I, I love that they realized that his strengths as an actor were just to let him go become a lunatic, and just leaned into it. It's so good. Yes. Well, that's it for me. I need to go drink some water. <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess uh, HT, it's your turn. What have you been watching? Uh, I watched a thriller called The Platform. This debuted on Netflix, I think, last week. It's a Spanish horror thriller sci-fi film uh, set in this uh, sort of dystopian type of prison in which every cell is built vertically. And in the cell, which only houses two um, cellmates, there is a giant hole in the middle through which a platform full of um, food, a feast of food, lowers uh, for each level. And there are hundreds of levels in this prison. So at the top, the prisoners receive the most food, and it's like this incredible banquet. And as the platform gets lowered and lowered, uh, less food is left until the um, there's absolutely nothing left for the bottom floors who are left to starve to death and or engage in cannibalism. This is a really, really brutal and bleak film that uh, to the point that um, halfway through I considered turning it off just because it got so grotesque and so uh, disturbing. But uh, I powered through and it is really effective in its very unsubtle criticism of capitalism and the... um, the hierarchical nature of such, though I will say I feel like Snowpiercer did it a little bit more elegantly, Um, but it does its job, and um, I will recommend it only if you are not weak of stomach, because it is quite a disturbing film to watch. Um, Has anyone else seen The Platform? Uh, Everyone was talking about it at Fantastic Fest, but I did not see it, but I hear... I heard it's wild. Yeah. It I'm annoyed. Someone talked me out of it at the fest saying it was terrible. Then immediately after I missed the last screening, everybody told me I should have seen it. And now everybody's raving about it. And I'm so mad. I think I think Jacob and Chris will like this movie. Um, I A lot of elements just really turned me off, but it does get incredibly wild and uh, insane. I think that some of the more unsettled elements, too, are just kind of a little bit too are, on the nose. But Is uh, there anything involving, like, animal? That's like my... Oh, uh, yes, there is, actually. <laughs> All right, then I won't be watching it. Never mind. <laughs> There's a dog. Uh, I won't say anything more. All right. Yeah, I will definitely not watch this then. Thank you for telling me. You're welcome. 
Um, I also watched Moonstruck for the first time, which I really, really enjoyed. Uh, this is a film that I had been meaning to see for a while. This is the uh, romantic comedy starring Cher and Nicolas Cage. It's streaming currently on Amazon Prime. And um, I had seen it gone, I think part of it went viral for a little bit on Twitter because of uh, Nicolas Cage's line where he talks about how bread is his life. And um, so I just kind of used that excuse to, or like I was inspired by that to finally watch it. And I really, really enjoyed this film. It's so heightened and fun and funny. And um, uh, it everyone speaks uh, either in riddles or in poetry, and they all speak with really aggressive Italian gesturing. It's the most hilariously stereotypical Italian film I've ever seen. And um, Cher and Nicolas Cage are fantastic and have such really like, searing chemistry. And Nicolas Cage is just like really, really attractive in this film. I have to say, like, I've always kind of wavered on whether Nicolas Cage is attractive or not. I've always liked him as an actor. I think that he's great in every film that he does. But in this movie was the first time where I felt really, really attracted to him. And, um, yeah, he just like, gives off this really physical and um, pr primal performance. And um, it's it's almost hilarious how straightforward he is uh, my roommate and I as we were watching together kept just repeating his lines where you say like oh I like your hair in this hilarious just like deep voice and um, I have to say too that uh, this is kind of just my own way of thinking it doesn't have anything to do with the movie but it uh, made me realize why everyone likes Adam Driver so much. Uh, Nicolas Cage has kind of the same energy that Adam Driver does in a lot of his films it's kind of awkward um, I don't know, chemistry to him. And uh, uh, I have to say, I, I kind of understand now why people love Adam Driver. But yeah, Nicolas Cage is excellent in this, as is Cher. And uh, I absolutely love this movie. That's Moonstruck. Um, and uh, the last thing I did was I rewatched Rear Windows. It was kind of inspired by me going on my roof and just creepily staring at all the windows of my neighboring buildings around me. And um, my roommate had never seen Rear Window before, so we decided to watch it. And uh, it's, you know, perfect film. One of my favorite Hitchcocks. Um, I love how tight and taut it is. And um, uh, the performances by Jimmy, James Stewart and uh, by Grace Kelly, who I think is the platonic ideal of the Hitchcock blonde in this film. And uh, yeah, it's my... I watched this movie like two or three times already, but every time I absolutely adore it. So Rewindow, that is, is it streaming anywhere? Where, where did I watch it? I was going to say, do you own this or is it streaming? Because I, I actually had, uh, I think I inspired by you. I was like, man, I really have, I need to rewatch re Rewindow. And then I don't think I could find it streaming anywhere. I didn't know if you had no, it on DVD. I rented it on Amazon, I remember now. Okay. Yeah, so you can rent it, but uh, it's not streaming anywhere as of now. Yeah, it looks like it's like four bucks on Amazon or YouTube or Google or iTunes uh, to rent it. So, yeah. Uh, ben, what have you been watching? Uh, so in addition to Happy Death Day to you, I watched The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which is written and directed by um, Powell and Pressburger. This came out in 1943. It is a romantic war drama uh, starring Roger Livesey. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. And Deborah Kerr. She plays multiple roles in the movie. Um, Roger Livesey, man, he is... Uh, I don't really know much about him as an actor, but he has been very impressive in everything that I've seen him in. Um, and I, I guess he, he uh, worked with the Archers a lot back in the day. That's the 
the nickname of Powell and Pressburger. Um, this movie is really, really good. It, it's about uh, a general who is, or, or I guess he's just a soldier to start out with. And he fights, it, it takes place over the course of like, I think 40 years or so. And it, it tracks him and his uh, progression as he just fights through these different skirmishes and it, it sort of tracks his love life. And, and uh, he has this... Um, he fights a duel with a uh, a German soldier and they end up becoming friends. And the movie, I, I really found it to be like shockingly relevant to our current political situation because the main character is this aging soldier general character who grew up in this older era of war. And the movie is a, sort of about how important it is for him to adapt with the times and fight the enemy with current methods instead of expecting archaic tactics to just simply work over and over again because they've worked in the past. And I, I cannot think of a more uh, relevant, uh, um, I guess, parallel to like our current uh, politics and, and how uh, Democrats and, and Republicans are, are um, shaping the narrative of America right now. Um, you can decide which side needs to update its tactics. Uh, I'm not going <laughs> to you know, go on a diatribe here or anything, but, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, Jacob, this seems like one that you would have seen, right? Absolutely. Uh, Powell and Pressburger are two of the best filmmakers of all time. Uh, uh, matter of life and deaths, my second film of all time, uh, but the red shoes, black narcissus, this doesn't get talked about as much as with other films and it's just as good. Uh, it just, I think it, if I remember correctly, it's a bit longer than those. Maybe that's why people stay away from it or because the title feels a little, little bit silly from the outside. But yeah, if you have not looked into the filmography of Powell and Pressburger, most of it's on Criterion Channel or a Criterion Disc at this point. Uh, it is, these guys are just incredible, and their movies are so beautiful. Like the, the most beautifully shot films from this era, for sure. Yeah, yeah. This, um, I actually had had this in my queue for a long time, but sort of stayed away from it because I thought the title was a little silly. But there's not even a character named Colonel Blimp in the movie at all. So uh, if that's the only thing that's holding you back, then. Uh, don't don't hold back. Watch this movie. It is available on the Criterion channel, which is where I streamed it. Uh, so that's the life and death of Colonel Blimp. And then I also had a, a, a Toshiro Mufune uh, marathon. I'm not sure if that's exactly how you pronounce his name. I apologize if it's not. Um, this guy worked with Akira Kurosawa a ton of times. I've talked a couple times about some of the movies that I've seen uh, of their collaborations. Yojimbo recently, um, some other ones, but. Um, uh, I think last week would have marked the 100th birthday of Mufune. And so uh, also on the Criterion uh, channel, they have a lot of their collaborations streaming right now. So I watched Drunken Angel, which was the first time that they worked together out of the, the 16 total times, the 16 total movies that they made together. Um, Drunken Angel is very good. It, it also stars uh, Takashi Shimura, and he plays this alcoholic doctor, and uh, Mufune plays this really like low-rent gangster in uh, Japan, and um, it's really interesting to see what Japan looked like in 1948. It, it sort of has like a small town feel to it versus like the, you know, whatever megalopolis or whatever term is that it is now. Um, and this movie, you know, like a lot of great film noirs, it's it's sort of about this underlying sickness in society. It's a sort of about how uh, people who do awful things like steal from veterans on their way home from war and, and how these like terrible things can drive otherwise good people to do terrible things of their own. And there's this really stifling feeling to the movie where it sometimes feels like people can barely breathe because of the situations they face and the hardships that are facing them. And I feel like the movie 
reflects that uh, sort of physicalizes that a little bit with this heat wave that's always drenching the characters in sweat. This is such a sweaty movie in that way. Um, it's like one of the hottest, like most unpleasant movies to watch because it just makes you feel really hot. So maybe it's a good movie to watch in winter um, if you're freezing cold and cooped up in an apartment or something like that. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's called Drunken Angel. Has it, have any of you seen this by any chance? Uh, I've seen all the films we're about to talk about. They're all great. Uh, the second one, though, you're about to mention is my favorite of the bunch. Yeah, so um, Stray Dog is, uh, man, I, I this one I, I think is even sweatier than, <laughs> than Drunken Angel. Um, this one's super sweaty, actually. It's based a little bit, or, or at least was inspired by The Naked City, which is a, a, an American film noir movie that came out about a year beforehand. Uh, this one came out in 1949. Um, it also stars those same actors, Mufune and Shimura, and was directed by Kurosawa. And it's basically about this uh, rookie police officer who has his... Uh, I guess police issued uh, gun stolen from him on a bus during the middle of a heat wave. And he, the whole movie is just this like police procedural where he just hunts down clue after clue after clue and trying to find out what the hell happened to this gun and people start committing murders with the gun. So he is just racked by guilt and Mufune is, is so solid in this movie. Um, it, it, Wikipedia says it's like a precursor to the buddy cop film genre that would sort of blow up, you know, whatever, 30 years later, uh, which I didn't really realize, but I, I guess looking back on it through, you know, with that lens, it makes a lot of sense because a lot of those, uh, sort of tropes and stuff are, are, if not established, then at least put to use, utilized in this movie. So, um, Jacob, sounds like you're a big fan of this one. I'm a huge fan because, one, it's an incredibly entertaining noir with an engaging mystery. But it's an amazing double feature with, of all things, 1954's Godzilla, because they're both films made in Japan by Japanese filmmakers in the immediate aftermath of World War II that deal with the fallout of what it was like to live in Japan You know, after two nukes are dropped on you, after you lost a world war. And even though this film is a fun cop movie, it is very much about you know, how does a civilization rebuild itself after that, after Nagasaki and Hiroshima? How does, how does, how does your civilization that's existed for thousands of years continue when you're now being occupied by American forces who are for essentially systematically changing your government and your, in your society. Mm -hmm. And to see a Japanese filmmaker grapple with this through entertainment, um, both in this and except of all things, Godzilla, uh, this proves to, like it's such a, a valuable cultural artifact from from this era of Japanese uh, art, and I think it's a fascinating movie. Yeah, it's really really enjoyable. That one is also on Criterion Channel, as is Sanjuro, which is the I guess quasi sequel. I guess it, it was basically it came out after Yojimbo. I think that the year after and. It was originally supposed to be another movie, but they sort of reworked it to include Mufune's character, uh, this this sort of wandering Ronin character from Yojimbo as the main character of this movie. So it sort of reminds me of like uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance or something like that, where, you know, that's another film that was like famously uh, changed to incorporate uh, Bruce Willis's John McClane <laughs> Um I actually, I think, and I, I'm not sure if this is a popular opinion or not, but I think I like Sanjuro more than Yojimbo. I know Yojimbo is like uh, the more influential movie and was remade a couple times as as Westerns and um, is like the one that I think is generally held in higher esteem. But for me, Sanjuro is a lot funnier and uh, the deception in the movie is a lot more interesting to me. Um, it's basically about the samurai who wanders into a town and he discovers that there's this group of clansmen who uh, need to, who are about to get killed because 
their uncle, one of their uncles has been framed and imprisoned by this superintendent of the area who is uh, this corrupt sort of politician guy. And they're about to just wander in and, and get uh, obliterated by the opposing army. And he decides to help them. And um, the the humor in the movie comes with them like wanting to rush into situations and, and just being really stupid about everything. And him just being like, calm down, you idiots. Here's what's happening. Here's the way that this is going to work. And he's he's such like a, a swaggering anti-hero in this. Um, so yeah, if you're looking for a really good Mifune performance, uh, I would say watch Sanjuro, which again is on Criterion Channel right now. Ben, have you seen High and Low? I have not. I actually have that uh, next up in my queue, so um, I, I'm looking forward to checking that one out. Yeah, I think the fact that the same actor, Toshiro Mifune, could, could star as a rookie cop and stray dog, a badass samurai in Sanjuro, and then a middle-aged businessman whose child is kidnapped in High and Low, the, the range of this guy... Uh, just incredible. There's never been another actor like him. I, I, I can't, I can't think of a modern equivalent to him. I can't. Yeah. Once I get through his whole filmography, which is something that I'm greatly enjoying, by the way, because I don't think I've come across a dud from him and Kurosawa yet. Um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing if I can come up with a, a modern comparison myself. Cause I've sort of been thinking about the same thing. Like I, I've just been very impressed with his range so far and what I've seen. And it looks like I've uh, a long way to go. I've, I've sort of barely touched the surface here. Okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. Since Brad isn't here, HG's going to tell us about what she's been eating this week. Yes, it's not that exciting as uh, as Brad's many um, collection of, of uh, snacks. But um, I've been cooking, you know, and uh, I have uh, been updating my adventures and cooking on my Instagram stories. And this week, I tried frying tofu for the first time. This is something that I've been kind of hyping myself up to do for the past two weeks. And I finally just bit the bullet and did it. Uh, I've been very scared of frying uh, things because the idea of hot oil splashing around is just very scary to me. And I, I only fried something once before and it went very wrong because I don't have a kitchen thermometer. So I didn't know how to measure whether the oil was ready or not. And, um, when I last, last time I fried something, it was a pork cutlet. I was trying to make katsu curry, which is a Japanese curry with a pork cutlet. And my, my pork cutlet got burned and I was very sad. Um, but this time, I fried tofu, nothing got burned, nothing caught on fire, and it was delicious. So I made like this Vietnamese sort of a classic Vietnamese dinner spread with tit zang, which I've talked about making before. It's kind of caramelized uh, ground pork and um, the fried tofu with this sort of scallion oil uh, fish sauce sauce on top and um, a cabbage with uh, this sort of egg, hard boiled egg sauce. Don't know all the names in Vietnamese, unfortunately, I think it's whether like there's a, a dish. Yeah. There are specific dishes, kind of things I grew up eating. So, um, I was really just, I was really excited about not nothing catching on fire when, um, I fried tofu. <laughs> this is not a dig at Chris, by the way, I don't mean, to, <laughs> this is just something that happened. And I just, I'm very grateful that like everything went well and I didn't die and burn. So yay. Well, it's not like you're frying a turkey in like a garbage can or whatever. Whatever that goes wrong is like crazy. Yes, uh, but I'm always watching your Instagram stories. And I'm like drooling at all the like food that you're making. It all looks so good. And wh- what did you um you car- caramelize the like pork in some kind of like I forget what you said some kind of sauce. Yes. So the caramelized ground pork is just, it's very simple. You just, uh, it's just shallots, garlic and ground pork that you kind of, uh, um, press like 
you know, chop up or not chop up, but, you know, um, mix up with your spoon, uh, with the wooden spoon. And uh, it's soy sauce and uh, there's some like sugar in there, uh, dark soy sauce. Um, yeah, it's very simple. Yeah. Oh, some fish sauce, too. So it's fish just a, it's a simple thing. Very cool. Uh, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, you are the only person playing this week. What have you been playing? Uh, Peter, I played about 100 hours of The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, and I beat it. Wow. Congrats. Uh, it's one of those games where it's simultaneously stressful and relaxing because there's so much to do at all times. Your list of quests grows and grows and grows, but the game, the game's world is so idyllic at times and so oddly peaceful that there's like a relaxation to exploring it. I mean, so many open world video games, uh, even ones I enjoy like Grand Theft Auto V or Red Dead Redemption 2 are so full of events and side quests and chaos. It's like everywhere you go, crazy things are happening. Whereas in Breath of the Wild, you can be wandering around, you know, the kingdom of Hyrule for 15 minutes, not see an enemy, not encounter any danger, just climb mountains, collect berries. And there's something relaxing about the emptiness. There's something beautiful and lonely about it. And I mean, there's plenty of action, and, and and of course, like all Zelda games, you storm a castle and you fight Ganon at the end. Um, but there's still a lot more to do. There's, there's a ton of side quests I left unfinished if I wanted to go back. There's a lot of items I didn't collect. But I reached a point in the game's narrative where it felt emotionally right to go to the end game. So um, on my lunch break a few days ago, I grabbed my Switch and I uh, beat Ganon. I kicked his ass. The final battle was a bit of a pushover after 100 hours of, you know, getting the best equipment and building up. But um, three years late to the party, but it's one of the best games I've ever played. Uh, I am i don't regret the time I put into it, uh, and uh, I'm really hoping Nintendo announces another Zelda game soon, as is rumored. And speaking of Nintendo, uh, they released a big update for Ring Fit Adventure, the exercise game. And this is good news for a couple reasons. One, it means more Ring Fit stuff. Hooray, there's a new rhythm mode where you can, like, you know, do, like, essentially exercise, exercise dancing, and they, like added like new uh, vocal tracks you have a, a like a little this character like the in the game who's like your little psychic who's shouting encouragement and exercise tips as you play and they add like vo- different voice options for the for that these are all minor things but the fact that ring fit is sold out worldwide right now and the fact that nintendo is adding upgrades and, and uh updates uh suggests they're going to continue supporting it uh and i'm really happy to hear that i'm really happy that's doing well for them and that they have the they see that they see a need to keep adding more to it because I genuinely think this is going to be uh, a game changer for exercise games in general. Uh, so if you if you can find a copy, uh, even though it's sold out, uh, you, <laughs> you know, make it sound this. like that's easy. It's not easy. Like I, I told so many friends months ago, hey, Ring Fit's amazing. If you haven't hit the switch, get it. And now during the pandemic, it's sold out like that. And now they're all text me saying, why can't I find Ring Fit? I'm saying, you waited too long, you fools. Uh, but yeah, it, once it's back in stock, Hopefully, before the pandemic's over, uh, it is. It, it's such a rewarding thing, and I'm really glad to see Nintendo is apparently in it for the long haul. Very cool. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast published three times a week on Slash Film, iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And rate and view this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word, and we will see you on Friday. Hey, hey, Peter. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to say this, Jacob. I, I we got yeah. this package this past week. I, I I actually forgot about this. I got a package this last week uh, when we were doing an unboxing for our YouTube channel, Ordinary Adventures, and mm-hmm. one of the packages was filled with Canadian candy. 
So oh. I, I yeah. So me and Ketra tried out all this. Like it was like a huge, like probably like ten pound box full of like Canadian candy and chips. It had like ketchup chips and and uh, uh, the, all dressed. I I wish Brad was here so we could geek over like all all, all these uh, interesting, unique candies and stuff. But like we just put the YouTube video up on the YouTube channel. So if you want to check that out, so yeah, well, yeah that's uh, not- that's great. Uh, in the meantime, I have the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery. Sharp retorts for posts, caustic quips, implied put-downs by Lewis A. Safian, the master of the insult, in front of me. And I've opened it to page 125. Idlers. Uh... Idlers. <clears throat> ben, he's a two-dimensional guy. He has longitude and lassitude. I genuinely don't know what that last thing well, is. I'm going to well, have to look it up while yeah, you Yeah, what does on. lassitude mean? He's a two-dimensional guy. He has longitude and lassitude. It says a state of physical or mental weariness, lack of energy. You know, the best jokes are the ones where you have to go to the dictionary and look up a word. Mm-hmm. Ben's a two-dimensional guy. He has longitude and lassitude. Two-dimensions. HT, HT, the only thing she grows in her garden is tired. That's very true, actually. That's me. But I don't get it why it's in my garden. Because the only thing you grow in your garden is tired. <laughs> okay. <laughs> HT, the only thing she grows in her garden is tired. Oh, no. Peter, he heard that hard work never killed anybody, but he's taking no chances on being its first victim. Wow. And Chris, he's not afraid of hard work. He's fought successfully for years. Mm-hmm. And Brad... He's not here, but he stopped drinking coffee in the morning because it keeps him awake the rest of the day. Mm. Funny jokes. (laughs) (laughs) 